I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In a world full of pre-dimension lumber and $4 lattes, two men have united to save woodworkers the world over from assuming three-quarter inch s4s is the best money we'll ever buy one man the consummate professional having spent some time in the shop of none other than david marks himself the other guy watched every episode of the new yankee workshop and not much more alone in their shops they're not too bad but together they're dynamite just two guys talking wood or two guys changing the woodworking world forever you decide so here they are, your hosts of Wood Talk Online, Mark Spagnolo and Matt Vanderlist. Take it away, boys. Welcome to Wood Talk Online, a very special Wood Talk Online. We are live today. It's uh, episode 35 for April 30th, 2008. I'm living large, Mark Spagnolo. And I'm about to hurl once again, Matt Vanderlist. <laughs> if you have a question or comment, some suggestion, you'll probably have plenty of them after today's episode, I'm sure. <laughs> probably be hearing from quite a few of you. You know what? You can email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com, or you can pick up your phone, leave us a message at 623-242-2450. Wait, did I put an extra digit in there? It's you may have, but they'll figure it yeah. out. Yeah, it'll be in the show notes someplace for you. Or if it's really bad, you can leave us a comment uh, in the uh, chat room so we can ignore it immediately. Yeah, yeah, we're not watching the chat room right now because that would be way too much of a distraction. But uh, we would like to thank everybody, first of all, for everyone who showed up. Um, This is kind of a new thing for us. We're just going to try it out, excuse any of the technical glitches, and uh, we'll, we'll do our best to persevere through the whole thing. And hopefully you won't fall asleep by the end of it. Yeah, really, that would not be good with a hot laptop sitting in your lap in a you know in a room or something. That would not be good. You know, Mark, I was thinking about it with that intro. We should we should just had Nicole just step up, push you out of the microphone, and do it live right there. Put some pressure on her too. Actually, that's a good point. But you know what? She's not good under pressure like that. I mean, if it, if she's being paid by her company, she can do it. But if I ask her to do something that requires like that kind of you know live interaction, she's not too uh, she's not too thrilled about it. So. 
Um, gotcha. Just, gotcha. just to clarify for anybody, what we're going to do later on, we're going to do our normal show, and toward the end, we're going to actually have live chat uh, questions, so that if anyone has a question, you need to private message Nicole. Now, she's in under um, a screen name, Ask Questions Here, or something, so uh, click or double-click on her name and send her a question, and she'll weed out all the ones from John. Um <laughs> And all the ones that we really want to read, she'll provide to us later on, and we'll be able to answer some of your questions. Uh, that is assuming that we know the answer to the question. Um, right. And, and that, if, go ahead. Nicole, I'm going to warn you if you get any if you get any from my wife, I'm not sure what screen name she's going to go under. I am not helping with laundry today. Damn it! I did all the dishes. <laughs> I bathed the kids. <laughs> I did. I did dishes today too. What a coincidence! All I right. Um, moving into our uh, content. Uh, let's see. Well, first of all, have you even had a chance to do any woodworking lately, Matt? Because I think you're slacking off lately. I have been slacking a lot, but you know what? I actually have been working on some projects. I was making like a a, a small oak bookcase for one of our, our friends. Actually, it's for his daughter. Okay. And uh, the the nice thing is, you don't, I don't know if anybody remembers the Aiden Dresser project that I really dropped the ball on. I know it's been brought up a few times. Right. You know, started it, filmed it halfway through, kind of forgot about it. Mm-hmm. This one. I have actually filmed the whole entire thing. Whoa. And yeah, now it's a matter of just sitting down and actually editing it, which I was going to do tonight, but I prefer to be here with all of you live. Nice. So, no, that's cool. And uh, how many um, episodes do you think it's going to be? I'm going to think it's going to expand out to at least maybe five, something like that, because I don't want to make them too long. Unfortunately, I noticed I really kind of like jabbered on quite a bit during, uh, you know, rather than actually doing the woodworking, I talked more about what I was going to do. Yeah. And then it took me like 30 seconds to do it. <laughs> and then I talked for another five minutes about what I just did. So, <laughs> Isn't it amazing how that works? It always just seems to come out that way. Right, exactly. So wow. so I got to go through, edit it out, and uh, we'll see how that goes. And I promise there, there's no throwing up in that one whatsoever. <laughs> cool. <laughs> good news, good news. Uh, well, you know right. what? I haven't done a whole lot of wood, uh, actual woodworking myself lately. But uh, as everybody knows, we just did that whole... Uh, apparently it was like a world world tour it felt like uh but uh got back from ohio and saw the guys at popular woodworking uh which was amazing and awesome and boy do i have some bad news which i'll tell you in a second uh oh yeah we also stopped at the uh woodworks supply store uh which is in columbus and man i don't know if you ever have a chance to get out there that store is dull bomb it's it's incredible it's like a, a woodworker's candy store Oh, yeah, that's what I need is another candy store. Hello, if I stood up right now, it would be like all white in this frame. Oh, you mean like candy. Yeah, but the good thing is you can't eat the machines. Um, but they, uh, but it's it's definitely a place that you could easily spend a weekend in, you know, and also then go into major debt. But uh, b- beautiful presentation. You can tell that the store is made by woodworkers, you know, not that they're not necessarily good retailers. I mean, the retail is great. But there's just a sensitivity to certain things that would excite woodworkers uh, when you walk in the door. That's uh, pretty darn amazing. So we got a lot of footage there. Uh, got to meet the uh, the owners and some of the behind-the-scenes people. That was a lot of fun. Uh, got to see some of those Powermatic custom units up close. And uh, now here comes the bad news. Back to the popular woodworking thing. We spent, okay, yeah. Yeah, we spent basically an entire day with them, which included a tour of uh, Chris Schwartz's um, home and all the furniture pieces that he's made. And uh, when I got home, there seemed to be a problem with one tape. And Uh-oh. wouldn't it just happen to be the tape containing the tour of, uh, of Chris's home? I bet you he planned it. He probably had something in there that was like, you know, like sending out waves so that it got destroyed. It could, he's afraid of 
like me coming there <laughs> visiting. <laughs> yeah, there there might have been some force field. I don't know. He is sort of a superhuman uh, type personality, so you never know what's going on there. But we did get the interview with Chris in his shop. That's intact. Uh, but if anybody has any recommendations for data recovery for an HDV tape, uh, that'd be very helpful because I know the in- it's actually there. You see it when you fast forward, but you just don't get anything when you play, which means I can't capture it. So uh, I-, I need some serious help there because um, I'm really sad about that. that. That's a real bummer. Yeah, absolutely. That would be beautiful to see some of that stuff in there. That, that's He's done some great projects and yeah, just an opportunity to, to be around him. Definitely. I'm, I'm- devastated hey, you were you. you got to hang out with him last week or the week before yeah, <laughs> twice obviously i had to pay for one and then the other one he actually you know let me hang out near him <laughs> oh what a guy what a guy um you know the other thing i don't want to spend too much time on is uh mentioning that next week is safety week so look around the blogosphere and and all the magazines and there's going to be a lot of talk about safety so uh, uh keep your eyes and ears open and it should be a, a good time and lots of giveaways i know matt you're gonna have some giveaways too right yeah, I've got like one of them like right here. See, and then there's something over here, and you know what was that? that? Gives you an idea. It's a flash of uh, yellow. What was that? Um, a streak of yellow. It was a uh, what is this? Oh, it's a blade changer. Oh. Slow across the screen there. Nice. Yeah, I got yeah, a blade. A, I got I got a blade changer, but I call him my stepdad. <laughs> I have one. It's called Hamlet. That's our cat. He seems to <laughs> cut himself on my blades. I probably should learn to lower the blade. That's not a good, thing. A good uh, safety tip. Thank you, Matt. Right. Yes. Uh, there you go. It's a preview to next week. You'll be hearing more about it. <laughs> right. Hey, um, you know what? Do you want to tell us, uh, tell everybody about that, um, uh, the Woodworking in America deal? Oh, would I ever love to tell people about this. Coming up November 14th through the 16th in Berea, Kentucky, there is a huge hand tool and technique conference coming up. And they've got some amazing people that are lined up here. We've got, like, Roy Underhill, I do believe is called St. Roy's, his nickname. We're all familiar from the Woodwright shop on PBS. Oh, yeah. Uh, Frank Klaus, who makes perhaps some of the most amazing hand-cut dovetails. I mean, if you've ever seen those videos, I hate the man for that reason. He's so fast. Uh, I mean, he pulls out that giant uh, bow saw-looking thing and just makes it look like it's nothing. Yeah, and he's always like, you know, oh, by the time somebody gets their dovetail jig all set up, I can't do the Hungarian accent. Yeah. But, you know, next thing you know, he's got like, you know, four drawers done, and I'm like, I barely even scratched a line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hope uh, I hope when I get to meet Frank that I can uh, take a few minutes to share my extensive knowledge of Hungarian curse words with him. Oh, there you go. I hear he's a little bit of a salty dog. So yeah, my, pretty- my grandmom's Hungarian, and she used to curse at us a lot. So I, I'm pretty familiar with quite a few uh, little Hungarian curse terms. It's great. Nice. Yeah. Know, I'm gonna have to look some up on the on the internet or something. <laughs> right. I know probably all wrong though. Right. Uh, let's see who else is gonna be there. Uh, Michael Dunbar. We're all familiar with him. He's rather uh, well known for his Windsor chairs. He has the Windsor Chair Institute, I do believe. Uh-huh. Um, Adam Cherubini, who is a uh, editor for Popular Woodworking. He's the guy that likes to get dressed up in the fancy like 18th or 17th century clothes. And oh yeah, that guy. Sure. Yeah, and I hear he's like really really tall, which is unusual for that time period. So that ought to be really interesting. <laughs> uh, let's see. We have James Bluvey. Uh, Robin Lee, the owner of Lee Valley Tools, oh, yeah. Thomas Nielsen himself, who I had a chance to meet, who was another salty dog, I have to tell you. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, Larry Williams and Don McConnell, who uh, I can't remember. They're, they're hand plane makers, if I remember right. Yeah, I think uh, so. Yeah, John Economaki, the uh, owner of Bridge City Tool Works, uh, Conroy Sawyer of Sawyer and Steiner, Wayne Anderson, Ron Hawk. Everybody should be familiar with the Hawk name. That's oh, the yeah. Place- 
blades. Yeah. So I'm definitely going to try and get in tight with him, like, big time. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> we have Mike Wensloff, who I don't know if he's bringing his sons, but a lot of people should be familiar with Lens- Wensloff and sons, who are making some amazing back saws and uh, some traditional hand saws. They're really making a name for themselves. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're amazing. They really are. And, mm-hmm. of course... Chris has like they're like whatever that like a five foot Kenyan back saw or something. I don't <laughs> can't remember he had a custom made for him. But you know, if you're if you're interested at all in finding out more about it, maybe even attending, they have a website up now which is woodworkinginamerica.com. Of course, we'll make sure to have links for it. And uh, you can sign up for the conference's newsletter, and then once everything is being announced about when you can uh, register, which I do believe it, what did they say it was July first is when that's gonna open uh, up. Sometime right? before July first, I heard. Uh, we can jump into um what everybody looks forward to on a weekly basis from Wood Talk Online, and that would be our good friend Tom Iovino's tip of the week. Hello, everyone. It's Tom Iovino from Tom's Workbench, and it's time for another one of Tom's tips. When you build your workbench, you'll find dozens of opinions out there on just how high it should be. Well, if you think I'm not going to offer mine, you'd be terribly mistaken. What works for me in my shop is that the height of my bench is about one quarter of an inch lower than the top of my table saw. This way, I can use it as either an extra infeed or outfeed table for longer boards and sheet goods. Hey, the extra hand is always welcome when cutting something really big. If you want to discover more clever, useful, or even somewhat coherent tips, check out my blog at tomsworkbench.com or visit any of the other great blogs that belong to the Wood Whisperer Network at twwnetwork.com. Thank you, Tom. That was very, very smart, very slick little trick. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really great idea. Take a look at my shop. I mean, think about that, using something for multiple items. Yeah, you know, uh, the first time I saw that was on uh, Woodworks. I know David, David Marks' um, uh, hand tool workbench is in the vicinity of his table saw, so he just uses it for sort of outfeed support, and it works great. So it's an excellent idea. Yeah, um, absolutely. we got a couple voicemails here if you want to jump right into those. Bring it on. Let's do this. All righty. we got a couple from Roberto. He's a repeat uh, a habitual caller. So um, Yes, he is. That name is like almost showing up on my, you know, my caller ID at home. He's going to start so. calling you at home. That would be uh, nice. He sounds like a nice guy, though. Uh, he let, does. Let's hear what uh, his problem is here. Hey guys, what's up? This is Roberto calling from Texas. I have a question concerning my bandsaw. Last week I was cutting oak, uh, hard oak, corson, and as I was running it through the bandsaw blades, I was using a, uh, I think it was seven teeth per inch blade, really thin, about maybe a quarter inch thick, and there were sparks coming, what seemed like from the wood, and I know there wasn't any metal in there, I just wanted to know what that was and if it's causing harm to either my wood or my bandsaw. Thanks. Hmm. Sparks. Never a good thing, right? Yeah. Uh, see around sawdust or flammable material. <laughs> right. uh, no. Yeah. But well, you, you know, I mean, you you said that this was happening on your bandsaw recently, yeah, right? Yeah, it was. It was funny because when we heard this uh, this voicemail, it was like one of those. How ironic is this? I mean, this is just or coincidental. Ironic yeah. coincidental. Uh, but yeah, I was actually resawing some oak in my own shop, and I was using uh, my, my wood slicer resaw bandsaw blade. So it's like a three to four TPI. Uh, it's about a half inch blade, and I just assumed that it was actually the blade hitting the back of the um, uh, the actual uh, 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 blade guides itself. Okay. And but I have a feeling it was actually 
I, I'm not convinced it was coming from the wood, but I, I think it was more just the fact that it was being pressed so hard up against the uh, the guides and everything. It, it went away. Basically, I ended up s- slowing down my feed rate because I think I was just feeding it through way too fast. Right. And that's actually was my, my main concern was once I did that, I noticed the sparks immediately went away. And it's not like they were big sparks. We're talking like, you know, tiny little things. It was nothing to, for the 4th of July. So, <laughs> right. you know, it was, but that was my main thing was I think that the feed rate was just way too fast for the machine. And once I slowed it down, they went away and the oak still got cut like it was, like it was butter. It was insane. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the bottom line is, as you're pushing it through, uh, you're a lot of times putting metal on metal. You know, you've got that back thrust bearing uh, up against the back of the blade. Uh, it's very easy to get some sparking if you're putting too much pressure. So, um, like you said, you know, slow the feed rate down. Obviously, you want to make sure that uh, everything is tuned up nicely so that the blade isn't, like, right off the bat touching those guides. You want to ha- make sure it's got a little bit of breathing room uh, between the blade and the side guides as well as the thrust bearing in the back. Uh, if you do that, you know, everything should go pretty well. But even still, sometimes when, you know, forces inside the wood are, are pushing the blade one direction or the other, you still got to get through that cut. And occasionally, sometimes, you're going to get some of that, that sparking. So... I think to a degree, some of it's normal, but if it's excessive and you get it every single time, it may be something where you want to look into uh, a more uh, involved tune-up of the bandsaw just to be safe. Right. You know, and that's that's kind of funny that you mentioned the actual, you know, kind of uh, tuning it up a little bit and getting the uh, the blade guides all set up and everything because I was having trouble before with the actual blade. I couldn't get it tensioned the right way, or so I thought is what the real problem was. It turned out that my blade guides on the bottom – actually were so loose that the blade was all over the place. Let explain I kept getting that kind of barrel effect, you know, like right in the middle of the cut. Right, right. And so once I got that done, and it was funny because I got done with it, and I'm like, you know, I spent at least two hours the last time cussing and swearing, walking away from the machine. If I had just taken the 20 minutes to actually do this, I could have saved all that extra time for cussing and swearing at something else. So, <laughs> nice. so little tidbit. tidbit. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. Um, we got another question here. Okay. Um, now, this isn't the second Roberto, is it? No, that will be the last question. This one is a question from uh, from Terry. But before we have that question, uh, I just wanted to see what everyone thought of this whole live experience. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Cool. All right. All right. So let's listen to uh, Terry's question. Good afternoon, Matt and Mark. This is Terry from the Seattle area in Washington. I've got a question for the two of you regarding vacuum veneering systems. As I read through all of the woodworking magazines, they seem to have multiple reviews over every type of woodworking equipment there is out there, but I never see any reviews of vacuum veneering equipment. I know there's different types of vacuum veneers. One of them is a Venturi system, and the other is, I guess, just a regular electrical system. And there are some places online where they have advice on how you can actually build these systems. Um, They're not cheap, uh, but I was wondering uh, if you folks had had any experience working with vacuum veneering systems, what you think of the different brands that are available out there, what you think of a do-it-yourself type project, and generally give me and the rest of your listeners some advice on uh, how one might get into the business of vacuum veneering. Thanks a lot, guys. Cool. Good question from uh, Terry there. Uh, yeah. You know, it's. I guess it depends on how much of a DIYer you want to be. Um, you know, the Joe Woodworker uh, route, if anyone's not familiar, Joe Woodworker, 
com and veneersupplies.com, two very awesome sites with not just everything you need to buy to do it, but also all the instructions to build your own uh, system. Now, the, the thing is, though, it takes a decent amount of work. It's probably a good weekend project and a lot of parts and things to buy. Um, you know, of course, there's, what, the ready-made ones by, like, um, uh, what is the name of the site? Vacuum Press or oh, VacuPress.com is what it is. What, what about the Ziploc bag? press bags, the ones with the little vacuum. Would that work too? Well, you know, actually I've heard people on smaller projects that have luck with um, uh, the ones that I, they have the little pump with them and, yeah. and you just suck all the air out. You know, I've never really used it, so I can't comment on how well it works. Uh, but you know what? The bottom line is it pulls all the air out. If it does it effectively and holds the vacuum, then it's going to some extent, it's going to work. Um, so that's probably the one of the most inexpensive ways. And then there's the way that I did. Uh, you, yeah, which is uh, always a, a nice adventure. Um, actually, to My me... My favorite episodes <laughs> to date, I have to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, the, uh, the the thing that I decided to do was I just wanted to go with a continuous duty pump. And I didn't want it to be... Is Nicole laughing because I just said duty? <laughs> that girl's so immature. Uh, anyway, um, I didn't want to spend, you know, $400 on a big old... Um, uh, air system, you know, a big uh, vacuum press, dedicated vacuum press system. So looking around, I found a pump on a, um, I can't remember the name of the, it's like a surplus something website. I definitely will put the link to the exact model, but it's a pump that is super powerful, rated for continuous duty. And, uh, you basically have He's to buy, <laughs> I did say duty again. Uh, you basically have to buy a few little attachments like the little, uh, moisture filter and just the little doodads here that are all available on, uh, Joe Woodworker's site on veneersupplies.com. Uh, and it works like a charm and it's super heavy duty. Like I said, the only problem with it is it's 220. It requires 220 volt power. So, but we're talking a $90 pump here. You know, yeah, that's so, not bad then, really, if you think about the, the, the possible investment that you can put out on these things. I mean, you could get really super high-tech if you wanted to, but... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, for 90 bucks, you are you got everything you need. You just got to get the bag and uh, everything set up. Uh, to me, that was a no-brainer. That was the easiest way to go as far as I was concerned, and cheapest uh, at that. Right. You know, I thought about using the space bag system, but you know how you have to roll it? <laughs> that would ruin the veneers. I can't get those, like, solid panels. Space Sorry. bags. You can get them for what twenty nine ninety nine for three. That's right, you know, and you can just have your family sit on it like they're trying to like push down a suitcase <laughs> for camping, you know, for like going anyplace. So, <laughs> uh, that would be a trip seeing you try to to veneer something with a space bag. Okay, <laughs> um, we have one last email here before we uh, before we venture into the chat room, which will be scary. Uh, oh yeah, it will. I'll another one from uh, this. Yeah. Actually, is the second one from Roberto. So here we go. Hey guys, how's it going? This is Roberto. I wanted to ask a question on water stones. I understand that they have to be nice and flat, and I was wondering if there's an uh, inexpensive, read, cheap way of flattening them without go out, going out and buying them, buying some fancy gadget that flattens them. So, you guys can let me know. Thanks. Okay, the quality of that recording was terrible, uh, but what he was asking about was flattening water stones on the cheap. Um, I, I know some of the stuff that I've seen out there can cost 70, 80 to a hundred bucks for a, uh, something that's intended to flatten a stone. Um, but right. you're, you're sort of more the, uh, the hand tool guy. Why don't you, uh, take this one for Roberto? 
Right. No problem. Okay. Well, of course, there's going to have to be a little bit of investment. The easiest way, the cheapest way that I can think of is to get like we've talked before about like using a piece of glass, like about maybe like quarter inch thick glass, something that's got a little little strength to it. And you can easily put on some uh, uh, coarse sandpaper and you can use this to actually flatten the uh, the stone itself. You know what? Even if you have a reliable top, like say like your your, uh, cast iron surface for your table saw or your joiner. And you don't mind getting it roughed up a little bit because you're going to have to water it down to help remove the stone or to help flatten the stone as you're doing it. That's another option. I don't think too many of us want to get water near our cast iron, but you know, <laughs> that's definitely one of them. One thing that I, I have done in the past also, if it's if it's really, really dished out and, and I'm having a hard time with it, is um, I use my – I actually brought them with me. Uh, that's why the camera's kind of zooming in and out. But I have like a, a 220 diamond stone that I'll use. And preferably, the diamond stone is going to be bigger than the actual um, uh, water stone that you're flattening. Sure. But if it's not, you know, it's just a matter of making sure that you hit all the edges. Uh, was it recently in the uh, David Charlesworth sharpening video uh, that I reviewed for uh, Lee Nielsen? He actually showed how to do this and basically drew out like a graph on the actual stone so that he had something to reference on the surface to make sure that he hit all the areas. And that that's really the main thing is just simply... If you have a, a flat surface that you know is is true and flat, use that as your reference surface. And once you flatten out that first stone, you can actually then, you could if you wanted to, use that stone to flatten the other ones. But it's probably better to remain with the, 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 the really true one because uh, I don't know how many people are aware of this, but as we all know, water stones will kind of dish rather quickly. Right. And so if using a flat water stone to flatten a dish water stone, chances are it's going to get dished too, just kind of. <laughs> negative of the other one <laughs> right yeah definitely you know i've heard and this is not what i recommend but i have heard the worst i don't know maybe it would work but the cheapest solution i've heard is to use a cinder block a cinder block i swear really? i've heard that before and i'm not sure who did it but that's what i heard that people do so <laughs> you must have heard that at matt's basement workshop i think <laughs> i don't mean to, to pass on oh, yeah. To pass on bad information here, but that—that's—I did hear that that's a way to do it. Not—not not that I would do it. I think your methods are better, but that's what people have done in the past. At least someone has done that. You know, while you're at it, just take it out in the driveway, just run it across. <laughs> Use it like chalk, you know, sidewalk chalk. There you go. <laughs> perfect, perfect. All right. Um, you know what? Before we go into the uh, into the live chat, can we get some feedback and find out if anyone can see Matt moving? Because I don't see him moving on my my little screen here. The number for what? The phone messages. For the voicemail? Yes. Yeah, it is 623-242-2450. Call now. Okay. Operators are waiting. So then if everybody can see Matt moving, then it's just a glitch on my end, and we will move on to some questions. Right. Okay, we got some really doozies here. Um, let's see. The first one we have is from Teenage Woodworker. Uh, not only is he a woodworker, he's also a teenager, which is Ooh. really cool. Uh, he wanted to ask if he needs to take any precautions uh, before finishing ebony. Um, that's a pretty uh, pretty straightforward one. I would probably just give it a, uh, you know, after you're done with your final sanding, give it a, a seal coat of shellac. Um, tends to have a little bit of uh, natural oil content in it, and you need to seal that off before you top coat it. Um, you know, if you use a lacquer or, or shellac itself as the finish, it's not really that much of a concern. But like any other wood with oil in it, 
you definitely want to seal it away first so that you could top coat it uh, with your varnish if that's what you intend to use. Otherwise, the, uh, the oil is not going to allow that varnish to cure properly. So pretty straightforward stuff there. Um, or you could use my method, which is take pine and put a black magic marker. <laughs> and then you don't have to worry about it. So Beautiful. Mwah. All right. Uh, we have a question here. I don't even know what this question is about. Kipster asks, uh, are, are either of you guys familiar with an old world tool by the name of a draw boring pina, P I N A. Okay. And then he said that it can, the question comes from reading Chris book. Okay, so there's there's a typo here. So then he oh. wants to know about an old world tool by the name of a draw boring pin. Okay. All right. Yeah. Familiar with that. Okay. Tell us about it, Matt. Okay. And something about Chris's book. Right, and actually, this is in his. Uh, well, man, I'm giving it a lot of uh, uh, big hits for uh, Chris, but it's also in his uh, uh, DVD from B. Nielsen, uh, the Forgotten Hand Tools, I think it is. Okay. And essentially, what it is, it looks like a. Um, I don't want to say an ice pick or an awl, but essentially, that's what it really looks like. It's kind of a big one, and the idea behind it was that you could take a mortise and tenon joint, and you really could just flub up the, the, the mortise as much as you want, or the, the, the tendon as much as you want to. In fact, you could actually really screw up the, the mortise too. And the idea is once you bring them together, as long as the shoulder of the tenon is at least flat on the outside edges of it, you would uh, drill a hole that would go through the uh, sides of the mortise, or yeah, one side, both sides if you really wanted to, and then you offset the, the tenon just a little bit, and you would drill a hole through that too, and then when you bring them together, essentially what you're doing is you're going to drive this um, uh, the, the pin through the actual mortise and tenon itself. You actually kind of turn it, you crank it, and what this does is it crushes the fibers so that that hole now is a little offset. And when you put a pin through it, the pin actually will come down and it takes a little curve and goes back down and essentially holds that mortise and tenon. So if glue fails, if everything else fails, that pin will actually hold it in place. And I guess it's been used in timber framing for centuries. Is, oh, nice. That's what Chris says. So, right. yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting in watching. There's kind of like this twist thing to it. I can't remember if it's twist left, twist right. I'm sure it's going to be like lefty-loosey, righty-tighty or something. I'm, right. I'm it, it's kind of an interesting, you know, uh, a technique. Um, so I, I thought about using it because if anybody's seen my mortise and tenons, they're pretty hideous. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of like the, the draw boring that you might do for breadboard ends or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, just a, a little bit uglier is what it really comes down to. They're they're kind of meant to be hidden. Usually, you do it on one side and it doesn't go all the way through. So, gotcha. Yeah. Yep, okay. Well, I like ugly. So, all right, uh, we got a question from Steve. That was my wife, obviously. No, that's not. You're you're pretty, Matt. Don't let anyone well, tell you different. Well, not this picture I'm looking at down here. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, got another question here from Steve. He says he's setting up a new Powermatic planer. Uh, the instruction manual tells him that he that to munt i guess we're gonna have to do uh, typo inspection here uh the cast iron extension tables and to use a straight edge to align them to the main table now that i've done this the joint between them feels smooth when i run my fingers across it but when i run my finger nah i guess nail i could feel the joint with my fingernail how close is close enough um i would say that's close enough your fingers are super super sensitive as far as how much of a, a difference in texture um, and, and the different heights that you can detect with your fingers. They're, they're far more sensitive than our eyes are. Um, so if, if it feels relatively smooth on, on a planer, 
I think that's good enough. I, I think if you can catch it on with your fingernail, that could just be because there's, you know, maybe there's a baby chamfer on those edges and your fingernail is actually getting stuck in there as you drag it across. Um, but man, if it just feels with your fingertips, it feels pretty smooth. I would say that's close enough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, trust. Cause you know, you really, your fingertips are very, very sensitive. So when it comes to, well, except of course, if you've been rubbing them off with sandpaper, cause you're hiding from the police, <laughs> yeah, you burn them off. That, that could be a problem. <laughs> acid thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, Hey, Kaleo, uh, threw a question in there. A good one. Uh-oh. I might add, he says, um, that he would like to uh, to hear my personal review on Grand Theft Auto 4 and wants to know how many hours that I've invested in the game already. Uh, you know what? I, not as much as I'd like to. Only about three hours into the game. And uh, so far, it's as good as you would expect a Grand Theft Auto game to be, if not better. <laughs> How's that? Um, are you getting these questions on your side there too, Matt? Uh, I'm seeing everybody's questions, but I'm, I'm looking for Nicole and I, I, I think I'm just, okay. you know, all right, then I'll, I just wanted to give you a chance to read them, but if you can't see them, then I, I will just continue to read them. Yes, please do. I, I plus your voice is very soothing. Oh, I thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I thought about doing voiceover work. <laughs> uh, yes, I do it on my show all the time. I, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, anyway, uh, he says, uh, teenage woodworker once again asks, uh, can you ask them if they know of good finishes that he could try for Flame Birch? Well, Teenage Woodworker, uh, Flame Birch is not really all that different than Flame Maple or any sort of figured light colored wood, so I would say the same things that you do for those woods would apply really well for Flame Birch. Um, you know, so any of the oil-based finishes would be great. Uh, if you want to do like a grain popping with uh, with dye process, you could do that and uh, follow something like the uh, the finish that's in, in my DVD. Uh, the simple varnish finish on top of that is fantastic for figured woods. So that's probably what I would recommend. Would you do anything different for flame birch? Um, no, actually, you know what? I'm taking a, a, a uh, staining class this weekend or a finishing class. So I'm really excited about it because oh, I'm cool. still kind of the on-the-shelf uh, third row in at Home Depot. <laughs> Uh, right now, my main question is, teenage woodworker, where are you getting the money for these really great woods? My wife won't give me an allowance that allows me to buy these things. Where are you getting these things? This is insane. Flame birch and ebony? Yeah, I don't I don't think I have anything that good in my shop either. Wow. <laughs> yeah, like the best I have is like a piece of cherry. No, that's so. awesome. boy. Way to go. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right. Jermaine uh, asks, um, he says, I just ordered a 16-inch bandsaw. What size blades uh, do I recommend starting with? Well... I guess really, okay, 17-inch bandsaw. I guess really the question is, what are you going to be doing with it? You're doing a lot of uh, veneer cutting? Are you doing, um, you know, are you just using it as a a giant scroll saw, essentially, for a lot of curves? Um, I like to go on my, well, I guess because I have two bandsaws, my strategy is a little bit different. You know, I keep like a little quarter-inch blade on my uh, my 14-inch bandsaw, and then my bigger bandsaw, I keep a nice, you know, uh, three-eighths, usually three quarters of an inch blade on that because that's usually for resawing and things like that. Um, but at 17 inches, I guess he's probably going to try and do a little bit of both. I would say probably a half inch wide blade. Um, you know, maybe I guess if you're going to fall more on the side of cutting veneer and things like that, I would say maybe six tooth per inch, you know, for a nice smooth cut. Um, I have these guidelines actually in, in the bandsaw tune-up and also the veneer slicing or wish you veneer. I think I called it uh, episode of the show and I laid out my recommendations depending on what you're doing. So, uh, check that out. But, uh, very quickly, I would say that a half inch blade would be what I would choose, uh, for that mm-hmm. particular size saw. 
Right. 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 Okay. Yeah, I would. I would totally agree because yeah, like a, a three eighths is kind of in that range. But yeah, if you if you can go with a half inch and then maybe like a quarter inch, that really is a huge range right there. Because with a quarter inch, you can still do some pretty decent scrolling work. Oh, definitely. Obviously, super tight curves. You need to get a little bit smaller there. But yeah, that's that would. If I had to go with only two blades, it would be like quarter inch and half inch. If I had to go with one, it would just be the half inch. If I had to go with none, uh, obviously be none. <laughs> you would just use a coping saw. Yes. All right. So uh, Alan actually has a question here specifically for you, Matt. Uh, okay. He says he's heard you joke on We'll Talk Online about the critter sprayer and uh, <laughs> wants to know if, you, if you've had that bad of an experience. Hold on. Nicole's sending me Sorry. tons of questions and I'm losing my spot. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> so unprofessional. All right. I heard, uh, heard you joke, blah, blah, blah. He wants to know if you've really had that bad of an experience with it. Uh, he just bought one, hasn't tried it yet, and he's wondering if you might have some insight on its potential limitations. Um, you know, I really haven't had that bad of an experience. What it really comes down to is a lack of experience with it. Um, unfortunately, in, in my old house where I was trying it for the first time, I think it was an intimidation factor about, you know, kind of like really going out of my comfort range. Um, and yeah. when it comes down to it, you know, really, there's different spray patterns that you can use with higher end uh, uh, spray guns. This one, I think you're limited to one. There might be two. It might be like horizontal, vertical. Okay. So that, that, that might be about it. But really, when it came down to it for a very basic, very entry level, you know, uh, type of sprayer, um, I, I, I would recommend it. Although it's, I mean, it's only like 30 bucks, I think, 30, 35 or something like that. Maybe right. with, you know, money's probably changed now. It's probably a lot more expensive, you know, with, with, with everything that's going on. But it's still, it, it's a decent entry one, not to mention the fact that it's funky to have all those jars, those mason jars sitting up on your shelf with all these different fluids in it, you know. <laughs> but what's that one? Well, that's our jam, actually. I shouldn't be spraying that. But no, it, it really, you, you, I think you given a little experience with it and actually this summer that was one of my goals was to uh take it out back where i can't do a lot of damage to the neighbors and actually like, spray probably just use water colored water or something just to give me an idea of what i'm doing <laughs> right but yeah. give it a shot okay. so it could i mean it could perform i mean it's just we right. joke around a lot about it because it's you know inexpensive and i guess your first one or two attempts with it weren't all that great but uh right. it seems like if you work with it enough you probably can get decent results Right, and on top of it, the name is funny too. Critter, little critter. I mean, that just that that <laughs> yeah. sounds like something meat you'd call a little brother. <laughs> yeah, little critter. Uh, the other part of Alan's question is about shellac and how much it should be thin for spraying. Um, I could just answer that real quick. Uh, for spraying, geez, you could probably get away with spraying a three pound cut if you wanted to. Um, typically, though, I usually work with two pound and less. So that's not that it's I'm intentionally thinning it that much for spraying. Um, it's just that's what I like to work with. So I would say aim for about two pound. You could certainly use anything less. You're just going to be applying less to the surface. Um, it dries pretty quickly, you know, so the whole spraying operation allows you to move fast. Uh, so two, right. or, two or one pound cut is probably adequate. Right. Uh, you know, and one worth a kind of a follow up on that. I think the other bad experience I had or could be put into that bad experience, if that's what you want to call it. I'm a horrible dancer, and as you know, when you're spraying anything, you really gotta you gotta keep moving, you know, yeah. get that pattern rhythm. And this is kind of like me. I'm like, you know, white man overbite kind of a situation. So that's <laughs> right. not good. <laughs> yeah, you do need a little bit of rhythm to your step when you're spraying. That's for sure. Right. No, I, I I can barely like snap my fingers and walk at the same time. So. Yeah. Now I I have to applaud this next person just on their awesome name. We have a question from Steam Donkey. <laughs> <laughs> who wants to know how many square feet our shops are, if they're big enough, 
And uh, would we want more space, or would that just mean more clutter? Uh, I'll go first. Um, mine is about f- roughly 1,500 square feet, and um, is that big enough? Well, that's a relative question. I mean, the thing is, I find that woodworkers are a lot like goldfish in fish tanks, You know, where they say the bigger tank you give them, the more they grow. Um, right. I think that you just give us a bigger shop, we'll just keep filling it with stuff. doesn't necessarily mean clutter. It means that you'll be able to you know, fit more big tools in there and utilize the space. To me, the more room you have to swing a 4x8 sheet of plywood around or to build a big set of cabinets, the better. You know, So, I mean, there is an upper limit to that, but probably not a limit that most of us will ever even come close to reaching. So, um, I love right. my space. Yeah, I could use a little bit more, just like everyone else. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, well, we just put the finishing room on, too, to make more room. So, um you know, I guess I'm a little bit spoiled to even say that, but it's uh, it's something that I think we no, always want I, more. You're not spoiled, Mark. You're just <laughs> and lucky. lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that that's about it. So, right. what you got, Matt? Right. I'm coming in at, I just had to grab the calculator. I don't know if anybody knows me. Look off camera a little bit, but uh, it comes in at about around 300 square feet. Okay. Now, obviously, it's about, what, a third of yours or a fifth of yours. Let, um, let's not yeah, compare, I, Matt. Okay, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, let's let's just leave that alone. It's cold here. So, anyways, um, but yeah, I, I I agree with you the, the goldfish analogy because I guarantee that my wife has talked about she we have the basement split. One half is mine, the other half is hers for her photography business, and she's talked about like getting a standalone room and, or a standalone building and doing everything else. She's like, oh, you can have it back if you want to, and I'm like, you know. What would happen? You would never see me. It's seriously, it would, it would, I, I would be sneaking out constantly to go get put, you know. So that's that. Yeah, that I, it's, it would, and it wouldn't even be like room for like you know to really do stuff. It would be that clutter factor, right? You know, I mean that for me, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's, it's all clutter. It's no matter how much extra room I have, I'm gonna find something to put there, and it'll always be in my way. So yeah, yeah. though that there's some logic to that. Okay, another question. We'll just keep moving on. This is actually kind of fun. Sweet, yeah. Uh, we this got, time, we're actually talking woodworking. I think the last time I visited, we talked about anything but. Yeah, usually Wednesday chats. You know what it is? It's this controlled, filtered uh, filtered questions. We're not seeing all the other stuff that's being said uh, about yeah, my, my uh, 5 o'clock shadow. I look tired. Uh, <laughs> Matt, you're, the room is messy. I don't know. There's all kinds of things that they'd be saying. All right. A uh, question here from Offside. Uh, which is Eric in Malaysia. He's one of our, uh, one of the, uh, what do you call it? Wood Whisperer Network blog guys. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, Eric. I, I've, I've emailed with him before, I do believe. We talked about uh, some uh, gluing up some boards for a bench, if I remember right. Uh, yeah, he's a good guy. And he's in Malaysia. Uh, he yeah. says he's thinking about making a box that has a photo sunken into the lid, but doesn't want to cover it with glass. Is there a safe way to finish the lid so that it covers and protects the photo without ruining it? Wow. That is venturing into an area I know nothing about. I mean, you need something that's not going to uh, react or cause a problem uh, with the photo. I wonder if you should maybe somehow laminate the photo prior to finishing. Right, yeah, because I'm thinking, yeah, some sort of epoxy or something. But you're right, we don't want a chemical reaction with it. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe your wife would know. Yeah, you know what, I I should ask. Sam! (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah, no, she's, I mean, a full laundry, so. <laughs> uh, there you go. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't really have a good answer for that because I don't know what would interfere with a photograph. Right. Yeah, you know what? I'll ask her and then actually, you know, Eric, email me and we'll get a response and then we'll try and post it also as a follow-up. Yeah. 
and, and see what we have, see if she has any insight. I'm sure she'll just roll her eyes and tell me to quit acting nerdy. <laughs> I, you know, I would also think that if you if you have someone, you know, some to mess around with, take a few old pictures that you don't care about and set them down on the bench. And I would think if you could lightly dust it with some shellac, just de-wax shellac over the surface, test it out, see what happens. Because eventually the shellac is going to form a layer and then it's not really going to be affected by any other top coat. Uh, you know, so like anything else, if you have colors that you don't want to move around a lot, just give it a nice light coating first. Maybe even well, lacquer might be a little intense for the uh, the pigments and things in the photo. Um, but I don't know. I, I have a feeling that if you lightly coat it with shellac, it might work. You know that I was thinking something along the lines of that because I know that like when it comes to the actual like um, texture on the pictures themselves, like if you want a matte or a semi gloss or gloss something like that, I think it's just straight up lacquer that they spray on the photograph itself. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, that's yeah. If you have something that yeah, then go ahead and coat it ahead of time, protect it, and then basically drop it in there. Yeah. I mean, you know, when it, when it comes to epoxy, I'm always thinking of like people like my grandfather who would like drop coins in there and then watch us try and <laughs> dig them out later on. He was a cruel man. <laughs> and then you got that big giant thick coating of epoxy, which is looks like crap after about two years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice and yellow well. and thick. And <laughs> Charger says what? Polly works well. Charger says that Polly works well. So there you go. Um, Sweet. But like I said, I wouldn't want to recommend it until you try it because I don't know. But uh, someone who's tried it, that's good. Uh, Hendrick says hi. Hello, Hendrick. Hey, Hendrick. How's it going? We have a celebrity in the audience. That's Hendrick <laughs> Varu um, from what's the name of his site again? It's passionforwood.com. And Passion you can for actually, wood. Uh, let's see. He has his uh, DVD, his uh, famous DVD now, Joiner and Planer's Secrets, yep, uh, yep. Woodworking at Fox. And uh, a frequent contributor at Matt's Basement Workshop. In fact, he's our guest expert. Sorry, Mark, you got fired. So Hendrick is in. <laughs> I don't, don't want to be a guest expert for anything. Um, all right. Uh, oh, okay. So Teenage Woodworker gets his ebony cutoffs for five bucks a pound. Oh, nice. So, well, and cutoffs. Well, yeah. So it's not like I'm making an ebony table. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Still. But still, that's pretty good. I mean, ebony is great for adornments and inlays and things. So even if you get these little cutoffs, you just save them in a little container and take them out when you need them uh, right and i'm just gonna say that i'm still jealous because i know i will never ever see anything that nice <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. i think you will i think you will um we've got a very uh, intriguing question from tree frog uh furniture who says uh he wants to know who would win in a fight um iron man or batman uh, i would think I'm, that iron man would would win I don't know. I'm, I'm going to have to go with Batman because, really? you know, really the the original Batman. Now, not like the one from like Saturday mornings when we were growing up, you know, Super Friends League kind of a thing. Uh-huh. You know, like we're talking original Batman, the one that was like the superhero in the corner where Superman was like, dude, that guy scares me because he was so <laughs> dark and, you know, everything else. <laughs> he was a that badass. Batman, yeah. Because uh, uh, Iron Man with Tony Stark, isn't he drunk all the time? So. <laughs> Actually, isn't the uh, original Batman now the mayor of Quahog? What? Okay, that, <laughs> only people who watch Family Guy will get that joke. <laughs> okay. Um, That'd be it. Yeah, uh, all right. Teenage Woodworker, again, seems to be the only one asking questions. What's up with that? Uh, it's probably because he's so young and he can stay alive at this time of night. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, he says, can you ask Mark if he's tried the general finishes Danish oil yet? They sent me son and want to get his uh, opinion. Um... I haven't tried it yet. Uh, I don't use Danish oil very much. In most cases, and I don't think that there is, is an exception, Danish oil is usually just a oil varnish blend for the most part and 
a lot of times it depends on the company and the formulation, but most of the time it's a little heavy on the oil. Um, so it's, you know, very easy to work with is a great finish for um, giving you that sort of uh, nice, natural, close-to-the-wood look and feel without building a very thick uh, coat. And it's easy to uh, recoat later on if you need to. So, uh, I'm, I don't, like I said, I, don't, I haven't really worked with it too much, so I don't know about theirs in particular, but that's a pretty common description of a Danish oil uh, for the right. most part. I have some Danish oil out in my garage, and I guess I haven't used it because I haven't been able to read the instructions. Bump, bump, bump. I don't get Sorry. it. I don't get it at all. <laughs> I missed that one. That was right over my head, Matt, but uh, I'll laugh at that later. Okay, you would probably be the <laughs> one other than me. So, <laughs> right. Okay, so Kip asks, uh, how's Mark's finishing room coming along? Set up yet? Well, I'll tell you, the finishing room, the opportunity to have the walls put up and the stucco done uh, came up on us a little bit uh, before we were really ready. So I said, go ahead and do it, but I was not ready to actually start the project. So um, it's been on hold. I got the lights up. I bought some insulation, and we're doing the plumbing work and getting the little slop sink installed. Uh, the next thing to do is actually invest in the fan, which I haven't done yet. Once that fan is in there, uh, we could do the electricity and start insulating and, and getting the whole thing together. So we're getting close, but um, I don't know. The heat is coming on pretty quickly, and my motivation to go and do stuff like that is going to go downhill pretty damn fast as soon as that Arizona heat uh, hits. So, What, you don't want to sweat in 100-something? I talked about it before, Mark. Ooh. It's a dry heat. It is a dry 120 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Alan in Ohio has a question. He says, um, bradding on some molding on a case, I blew a – okay. Brad, I guess brad nails on molding. On a case, I blew a brand through the top, and removing it left a chunk missing. Why well, I feel like I'm reading in another language. Uh, any <laughs> suggestions on filling it? I plan to finish with oil varnish, top coat with shellac, so I'm not uh, staining the cherry. Well, that's a good start. Uh, if you were staining, it might be quite a bit trickier. Uh, so let's see. He's got a chunk missing because of a blown-through brad. I guess it really depends, Alan, on the size of that right. chunk that's missing. I mean, sometimes you have to go for an all-out uh, inlay sort of fix uh, if it's a really big piece, but other times a really good wood filler can do amazing jobs at masking uh, that type of stuff, and especially if you're keeping it as a natural cherry. Um, you might be able to get away with it, but you have to beware of the fact that the cherry is going to change color as it gets mm -hmm. older. It's going to get darker. Uh, so a repair that you do now may not... It may look good today, but it may not look good tomorrow. So... Uh, right. typically the best repair that I can imagine is to actually remove a larger piece of material with a router uh, of, a, of a known size and shape and actually try and replace it by doing an inlay, which is a little bit tricky, uh, but, you know, it may be the, the best way to go. And uh, you know what? Even then, you're going to have a problem because you're going to inlay a piece of uh, solid material on uh, what seems to be casework, so it's probably a piece of ply. So that's that's a troublesome problem. Right. Yeah, well, my question is, okay, so he was when he was attaching on a molding to it, that's when it happened? That's what it was sounds like. Okay, because I'm wondering then, is it is it in a hidden spot? Is it, could, it, could it be like hidden location? Um, he, well, he says it's about the size of a nickel. I don't know how well hidden it is. Um, okay. You know, it's definitely one of those things where, especially with a wood that's going to change over time, that really yeah. uh, tremendously <laughs> makes things more difficult for you. Um, right. You know, yep, uh, so yep. I would say try and get it replaced with uh, wood that at least will will change color with 
uh, even though it may not change at the same rate or end up in the same exact spot, it'll be much better hidden than a piece of, um, you know, or, or some type of a filler or something. So try try a uh, inlay if you could. And, right. you know, maybe if you're really good, you can even take a piece of the uh, plywood, uh, slice it down so it's, a, a, you know, maybe an eighth of an inch thick and use that to create your inlay with. Yep. Yeah, that sounds about right. Just an idea. Right. Or just simply chalk it up to the Matt's Basement Workshop version of Country Furniture. There you go. Your country natural. It is what it is. Furniture. That's Um, right. Yep. Yep. Got another antiques. (laughs) Right. Uh, Got another great uh, name here. Uh, Lugie asks. um, Actually, he didn't ask. He's got a comment. He says he bought the Erlex and he's had a lot of success with it and he's very happy with it. Well, that's good to hear, Lugie. It's um. I was really impressed with that system. I uh, am glad that Erlex is getting the attention that they deserve uh, at this point. It's a a very good uh, cost. I would say cost-effective system out there. Yeah, I gave it a lot of attention the last time I was at the Woodcraft store. I just stood there, and I stood there, I looked at it. Finally, Aiden's dad, they're closing. I'm like, shut up, all right? Just go to the car. I'll be there in a minute. Yeah, well, you know what? Save your pennies, man. It's worth it. Uh, let's see. We got a question from Boston Mike. He's uh, Boston Mike. Okay. Is he, is he on the computer? Computer? Uh, wicked Boston Mike. He says, I just built your end grain cutting board. Uh, for his first real project. It came out great. Wanted to add a rounded channel along the top edge and catch the liquids and uh, <clears throat> that would otherwise run onto the counter. Do you foresee any real issues with rounding that much end grain? Uh, not at all. I mean, some of, sometimes my variations of that uh, particular design involve creating the little drip edge. And, um, you know, just take your time. If you're using a, a little um, uh, cove bit or a, uh, what do they call it, a core box bit to do that, right. you shouldn't really have any problem uh, the the only thing you're going to confront is burning on that end grain. So be prepared to do a little bit of repair sanding as you go around, especially when you get toward the ends and you try to wrap that corner. You're going to be going, whoops, just bang the mic. Uh, you're going to be going <laughs> real slow as you round those corners. And um, that means you're, the slower you go, the more you're going to start to burn. So just right. be prepared to do your fair share of sanding. Maybe get a uh, gooseneck scraper that fits into that little groove and scrape some of that burnt material away to get it looking as good as you can. But um, no reason why you can't do it. Right. Definitely go with micro twists on the uh, the, the depth adjuster, you know, like one nanometer uh, at a time. Yeah, there It'll you go. It'll take you a little down, but eventually that will help to reduce the burnout. Yeah, very good point. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Um, okay, so Charger asked Nicole. what? Fi- oh, okay, I got it. He, never mind. I'm really bad at doing this. Uh, what finish do we recommend for a kitchen table? The wood is hemlock. Um, I First of all, I don't know too much about hemlock, so I don't know if there's going to be any issues with a certain type of finish. Um, well, you know what? Why don't, what would you use first before I say my opinion? Uh, my trusty polyurethane. <laughs> there you go. That, that's, that's the, I know a lot of people don't like it. Uh, that's the thing I'm most comfortable with. Um, yeah, I mean, for, for a kitchen table... That's uh, oh, sorry about that. I didn't mean to hit that crystal. <laughs> uh, that, that's that's pretty much what what I go with on on just about everything. I know a lot of people think it just gives it a, a really unnatural look, but that's that that's the the main thing. It, to me, it's like one of those fall fallback um, finishes uh, for just about anything and everything. Sure, so. sure. But you know what? You can't beat it though. I mean, if you're looking for a really durable finish, it's a kitchen table, which means it's going to be used a lot. Uh, it's going to have hot stuff on it. It's going to have things spilled on it. Um, you know, polyurethane is, is a great material for that. And, and honestly, if you get a good quality polyurethane, 
you do not have to put on, you know, 10 coats. You know, you can actually right. put on a thin layer and get a nice happy medium. It doesn't have to be super thick um, and it will still look pretty, pretty damn good. It doesn't have to be like a bar top finish. Um, the things I would recommend are, you know, if you don't want to use polyurethane, sometimes when you go with a good high quality varnish, that's not a polyurethane varnish, you can get a little bit nicer uh, of a look that doesn't look as, um, I guess, plasticky is what everyone usually refers to it as. Um, right. You know, so something like uh, Balin's Rock Hard Tabletop Varnish is a good option. Mm-hmm. Um, even Armor Seal, General Finish's Armor Seal is a nice option. Uh, and that wiping formula is nice because then you could really control the thickness of your film when it's all said and done. Um, if you want to really play around a little bit, I have experimented with using some pre-catalyzed lacquer for a kitchen table and have had some good luck with that. And I have a pre-cat water-based polyurethane um, that I've been playing around a lot with. It's a uh, one of the industrial um, series that uh, I guess it's like an enduro coat or something from General Finishes. Uh, and I, I can't really comment necessarily because it hasn't been a, in my shop long enough, but I'm going to start playing with that for, for things that need to be really uh, durable, but it's water-based, so I'm kind of excited about that. Nice. Yeah. Environmentally friendly. That's what I'm trying to do, Matt. I'm a, I'm a, all about uh, being environmentally responsible, so. Yeah. Oh, you're going to get LEED uh, certified? Uh, or lead? No, no, that's too much. See, I'm, I'm environmentally, environmentally responsible as long as it's convenient for me. Oh, yeah, that's, I, yeah, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I'm one of those jerks. Um, <laughs> no, can I recycle this? Or wait, I have to take the recycle out to the curb? Eh, that goes in the trash. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, wow, we're on a finishing kick here. Uh, Jermaine asked, um, well, he says he plans on building Chris Schwartz's um, French workbench design. And uh, Chris recommends using a oil and varnish finish. Can you give an idea of what he's talking about? Um, you want to hit that, homie? Um, he's talking about using some sort of oil. And, um, and varnish. varnish. Right. So probably just like, basically really what it comes down to is, is Chris has always recommended when it comes down to your benches, you, you don't really want a bench that has like a real film top so or a film finish to it. So in other words, you want to kind of stay away from like a polyurethane or, you know, a varnish or something like that. Really, you just want to use just a, a basic oil that's going to help to preserve the wood. But at the same time, you know, you, it's a workbench. You're not looking to like have dinner on it. You know, yeah. it, it, it it's look. You just want something that's gonna keep the wood from cracking and drying and all sorts of good stuff like that, because um, you're really gonna be beating the living daylights out of it. So don't really go too overboard with it, because at some point you're gonna look at that bench and go, eh, I need to like you know flatten it. Um, need to do something else with it. So sticking with like an some sort of oil finish, you know, or like tongue oil or something along the lines of that. Very basic, and you'll get great results from it. But when you start putting those film finishes on. And then you try something like hand planing on it or even maybe even sanding where you've got to hold it down. You'll find that it's going to go all over the place because that film finish, like a polyurethane or so, is going to make it a little slippery, believe it or not. So right. it's not so great for you. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's the big thing. If you have a real nice coat of poly on top of there, the work pieces are just going to slide right all over the place. And on a workbench, that's really not what you want. <laughs> you know, yeah. The last thing you want to do is start chasing your uh, project, you know, down the end of the uh, the, the workshop. <laughs> right, right. So what I would say, Jermaine, is probably just a uh, oil varnish blend. Just get a, a tongue oil or boiled linseed oil. Maybe drop a little bit of varnish in it. I would say maybe not that much, really. Right. I mean, maybe ten percent varnish or something. You don't want a whole lot. Um, basically, you could even get away with using something like water locks if you want. That's probably got a little bit more varnish in it. 
Um, but a couple light coats, and that's really it. You don't want to go. Uh, you don't want to get carried away. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Leave it as simple as possible. It's a workbench. It, it's you know, if you want to make it a masterpiece, then by all means, go for it. You can get as crazy as you want to on the finishes, yeah. but you know, just make it simple. Absolutely. Positively. Okay. Uh, question about Hickory. Uh, just wanted to. Um, uh, right. Okay. I guess Teenage Woodworker again is asking about. He, he's a busy dude, man. He's busier yeah, than he I is. am. That's for sure. Hey, wait a minute. Are you putting together your show through us, buddy? Because I do that, and I don't want anybody else doing it. <laughs> it could be. It could be a little sneak attack move. He's trying to uh, to take over. Okay, Hickory. Um, anything special about it? Well, it's hard. It's right. very, yes. very tough on your tooling. Um, I have worked with Hickory just because some of the cabinets in, uh, in uh, houses that I've worked on have had Hickory, and I've had to use it. Um, tough on the tooling. Um, can chip out and splinter pretty easily. Um, but mm-hmm. for the most part, it's really beautiful. Um, it's a beautiful wood. And if you're just making a frame, there's really, other than the fact that it's, you know, um, dense and, and hard to cut, that's about all you really need to know. Just, uh, be careful. Right. Yeah. Actually here in the Vanderlis household, we are splurging. We're going to put down some hardwood floors and we decided what? to go with like a rustic okay. hickory. So we're going to have a little bit of experience with that in the, uh, the Vanderlis household here. Cool. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. My, um, I don't think, actually, I think. Our kitchen and my parents' kitchen is all uh, hickory cabinets, and it's just got a beautiful grain pattern. Um, yep. We've probably got time for maybe one more question uh, before we have to cut it loose, and um, that at least means I'm going to cut the recording loose. In that point, if you want, Matt, you and I can stick around and just kind of uh, shoot the breeze in the chat room for a little bit. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's see. Yankee wants to know if either of us use uh, a Dremel. Um, I own a Dremel because there's just some times when you just need a Dremel for something. Um, but I have never really found my Dremel to be very useful for woodworking. Um, yeah. How about you, Matt? No, I, I don't own, own one. I've looked at them and I've thought about it. Yeah. Cause there's like what a million different bits you can get for it kind of a thing. But I, yeah, I've, I've never really had a, a reason to have one in, in my wood shop. Um, so no, I don't really have any experience whatsoever with them. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they can. I, I think people can probably come up with some creative uses, and carving might be an option with them. Uh, but whenever I do carving, I use my um, uh, Makita uh, die grinder, which is a lot more heavy duty, and I use much larger bits in it and stuff like that. The Dremel just uh, doesn't really uh, do it for me in, in terms of woodworking tasks for me personally. Um, right. But with that, man, I think we should probably wrap it up. If you want to do the contact yeah. info, and we'll roll on out of here. Absolutely. Let me get my show notes here. Of course, as always, if you've heard something today and you want to give us some feedback, you have a question on it for a follow-up comment or anything, email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com, or you can pick up your phone and leave a voicemail like Roberto, Terry, and Roberto at 623-242-2450. Very and cool. Yeah, we want to thank everybody for uh, joining in for the live uh, Daily Whacker that we're doing here. And um, I don't know, what do you think? We think we should do this more often? Oh, I, I, this is actually, this is going way better. You know, I didn't even throw up through this. I'm really shocked. I, I think I'm going to save it all up till after the camera's off. <laughs> <laughs> that Yeah, don't, don't throw up. That would be bad. All right. Well, uh, I guess until the next time we can get ourselves together and, and produce a little merry podcast like this, we will uh, see everybody next time. That's right, folks. We'll literally see, well, you'll see us, not us. See you. We'll see their chats and taunts and evil comments, and that's about it. <laughs> There you go. That's right. Take care, everybody. <laughs> All right. Adios and happy woodworking. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.